you have your Bibles, you can turn into Ezekiel chapter 6. Chapter 6. Uh, I often have difficulty when it comes to like preaching just or teaching just like one standalone message or one standalone teaching, and I'll just get really conflicted about, you know, what's the best thing for me to teach on. I've got this one moment, what, sh- what should I teach on, and do I just flip open the Bible and like whirl my finger around and voila, there it is, you know, or do, do I pray for 30 days and 30 nights, and then by that time it's too late to be ready to <laughs> teach it. But, but I'd asked uh, Dr. Garrison a couple weeks ago, you know, like, what do you think I should preach on this week? Um, and he gave me a reasonable answer. He said, you know, maybe you should look back through some of the lessons that you did this year in the youth ministry and just like expand on it and maybe you could make it a sermon, one that was really good, that was really impactful. And I, you know, naturally now I'm up here about to preach a 30-minute sermon on God's judgment. <laughs> like, what is that? So I, I don't know. It's just uh, something that God's been putting on my heart and in my study of the scriptures and in my own personal life, this idea of like God as judge is just very challenging uh, for us, I think, as Christians, and it's at least it's challenging for me. And it turns out it's a pretty complex topic. So um, before we dive in, I just want to give you all the two reasons uh, why I really thought this was appropriate. Maybe it's not appropriate. I don't know but I'm going to do it anyways. It comes from really two insights that I've had. And one is that there's a huge misunderstanding about God's judgment, about what it means for God to be a judge. I think there's just, in our culture, how can a judging God that we read about in the Old Testament be the same gracious and loving and kind God that we see in the person of Jesus? And there's just like this big disconnect a lot of times for Christians. And a lot of people approach the Bible with these assumptions that they have, and their assumptions about what they think they know about God or what they know about Jesus based on maybe things that are not the Bible. Maybe media or a teaching they had when they were younger or something, a Sunday school lesson. But anyways, in approaching God with these assumptions, um, what they're actually doing is they're narrowing their view of God. And... I do this, and I'm sure all of us have done it at some point or another. We have this idea of God that's, that's based on our own experience. And, and the truth is, the God in the Old Testament who judges sin and is angered and throwing down his fury, right? Like, we just don't know what to do with that. I, at least I don't. I don't know what to do with that idea. Uh, it's like kind of a taboo topic, too, because sometimes, like growing up as a kid in Sunday school, it's not something I hear addressed very often. And there's actually, and this kind of goes into the second thing, my second reasoning stems from the fact that I've realized that there are just like large sections of my Bible that I just have no idea about. I'm just clueless about, right? And you all, let's be honest, you can agree. There's, there are sections of our Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where we are just like lost. And, and that's okay. There, but specifically, um, and this leads to Ezekiel, the books of prophecy um, and I've noticed, I've been trying to read through the Bible in a year. I started last year, and it's taken me longer, so now it's like coming over into this year. But once you get to like these books of prophecy in the Old Testament, and you're trying to just like read straight through them, I have to stop and do a double take. I'm like, what did God just do? Did he just say that? You know? And, and that's the reality. That's, that's the reality that we have when we're reading through the Bible. So hopefully this morning, as we open the pages of probably one of the most densely packed books in terms of God's judgment, 
I can just, we can try together, me, because I'm participating in this, clearing our head of any assumptions we might have about God. Because um, we all have them, and we just need to clear our heads about what we think it means for God to be a judge, what it means for God to be loving. We need to clear those out and come to this. These types of scriptures, you've got to come with a fresh perspective. You've got to come with a clean slate. And so somehow in the next 30 minutes, maybe more, uh, I just want to try and give your all's cultural assumptions and expectations like a challenge. And is that okay? You all okay with that? Okay. So we're going to cover a number of different verses in Ezekiel today, but it's not really my purpose to try and teach you about Ezekiel. I really just kind of want to use it as a case study to talk about God's judgments. Ezekiel chapter 6. First, while you all are turning there, if you're not there yet, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, he lived in a time of like unending international conflict. Uh, So that's the first thing we have to recognize that at no point in Ezekiel's life was there like peace. Um, the, the famous king Nebuchadnezzar, which we know from the book of Daniel, right, that he was the king of Babylon, he led an attack against Jerusalem in the southern kingdom at that time, which was Judah, right? And some of you might know, you Bible scholars might know, that he, after attacking in this first wave of attacks, he took 10,000, around 10,000 people with him, 10,000 Israelites into captivity. And this starts what is known as the Babylonian exile. And it's a really important event in the Old Testament. It, it actually, a lot of the prophecies of the scripture come out of this event. So Ezekiel is actually a part of this first 10,000 people that are taken out of Babylon. So Ezekiel receives this vision and everything that he writes in this book is received while in captivity in a foreign nation. So first thing we need to recognize. Also, in the period leading up to the conflicts with Babylon, and while the period, and even while the period of exile was taking place, Israel was like really screwing up bad. I mean, that's a common theme throughout the Old Testament. Israel screws up all the time, but we screw up all the time. So, and and they, you know, they they were turning towards idols and pagan deities and like worshiping wooden statues, and and they had chosen that they were not going to worship God exclusively. They were going to kind of hedge their bets a little bit, and they were going to take up the gods of the foreign nations to try and, you know, give them extra power or whatever. So this was a persistent and ongoing sin of idolatry. This was not just like a one-time golden calf thing in Exodus where they come down from the mountain and there's a golden calf. You all know the story. It's, it's not like that. It's they have for many, many years continued in a pattern of disobedience. Um, so why does this matter? Well, let me tell you, or try and tell you. Well, first, it's, it's pretty clear that Ezekiel is living in a period of Israel's history where they have collectively lost their devotion and trust in their God, which is Yahweh, the God of Israel. They've, they've lost their devotion and singular passion for serving God. And they, do not, they don't worship him exclusively anymore. And this is not, like I said, not a one-time event. It's over multiple generations that they want the comfort of multiple gods that the pagan nations that appear so powerful have. They want that. And, and God, Yahweh, has been patiently enduring this unfaithfulness and this rebellion and disrespect from the people. And this is, this is the same people that, you know, he has sustained for hundreds of years, and he brought out of captivity, and he led them through the Red Sea. This is that same group of people. He established a nation, gave them a land, everything that he promised he would do. And, and this background is to Ezekiel is important also because it helps us to see that the judgments that we're going to read in Ezekiel are very context-specific. 
um, that God promises judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness, but we recognize a lot of times in the Bible when God is speaking about judgment, he's talking about bringing judgment through the actions of other humans. So in this case, the judgment that God says he is going to bring is judgment from the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians were another rival empire that were, or actually Babylon, later on, this was going to be Babylon that would come in and completely ransack Jerusalem and destroy it and take all of them into exile. So much of the prophecies of destruction and violence are fulfilled not by like God throwing fire from heaven, but by the international conflict that they were already in. So I know that's super boring. History lesson over. Let's go. Ezekiel chapter 6, chapter, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate and your incense altars shall be broken and I will cast down your slain before your idols and I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the cities shall be waste and the high places ruined so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down and your works wiped out. Wow, that was pretty depressing, right? <laughs> and, and like, we just need to, to recognize that is a lot for us. Like, to, to read that with the vision and image of God that we have and to come to a passage like that, we've just got to clear our heads of any assumption that we had. God, God proclaims in verse 2 to the mountains. Um, the mountains were often the place where these idol altars would be because uh, they were the high places. That's why he said he's going to destroy the high places. And then he says he will kill people in front of their idols and scatter their bones around the altar. So what the heck, God? Like, what is, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, It's kind of sadistic sounding, and we read this, and we're just like, God, you need to take a deep breath and go for a walk and just count to ten or something. And I, and I agree, like, that is my response when I read this. And, and we're just going to be honest and realize that to us this seems like a massive overreaction on the part of God. And it's hard for us as 21st century Christians with the full picture of the teachings of Jesus and the Gospels to really understand how is this God the same God? Well, we need to change our perspective. God has been watching Israel his people that he's been faithful to. He's been watching them for hundreds of years turn towards statues, turns towards wood, and they would worship in just very immoral ways. Um, and God's been watching for hundreds of years now. He's watched them not only consistently disobeying him, but also choosing to seek refuge and protection in other places. He's provided for Israel for hundreds of years, and this is how they repay them. All right, so in verse 5, I'm just, I couldn't just leave this because it's such a weird verse. He says, I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones around the altar. So what, that is also super weird. So some, some interpreters think that this action was an action of symbolic. And um, when Babylonian came, Babylon came back to uh, ransack Jerusalem, they actually did this. They would lay the dead bodies of the Israelites that they had killed in front of idols. So the prophecy was fulfilled in that way. But I think 
uh, the reason that Yahweh says this is because he is assigning the responsibility for their fate onto the idols. All right? He's laying them before them. Why is this important? Because what's actually happening in these passages about judgment, God is simply giving them over to what they already wanted. They wanted the refuge and protection of idols, right? They wanted to seek the power that they thought these other foreign nations had. And when the time comes for Babylon to attack Jerusalem, God simply says, well, who can, who can protect you? It's these idols you've been praying and worshiping for hundreds of years. So God's, God's not like a hothead. He doesn't, it's, not, it's not like us where when we get angry, like we say things we don't mean, we get bitter and it just snaps, you know, and, and God's not like that. So I remember uh, when I was younger and I made my parents angry, and i got to be careful because my mom's here today. Uh, so when I, when I made my parents angry, um, and they would come into the room or come to me when I was in trouble, and a lot of you probably have a similar experience, all of a sudden, like, that parent that was your loving mommy and daddy who's given you everything that you need, well, loving mommy and daddy who's given you everything that you need, they become like a scary monster, you know? Like, they, it's like a totally different person, right? You've had this experience, and you're like, who are you, and what have you done with my mom or dad? So, so some, of, some of you can remember as parents this very well, or maybe you can remember um, a time where your kid did something just so rude or so disrespectful, and in that moment, I mean, you love that kid, right? You love them, but they might as well be the personal embodiment of evil because <laughs> you're going to let your fury come out on them. Uh, you just lose it. You start yelling. You might even parent in a way that you don't mean to. Um, and that, that's, that's actually like a very, that's, that's like the paradigm we have about God. That's, that's kind of the way we think about God. We, we view God as this person who can just be loving and gracious in one moment, and then when we do something wrong, it's like a light switch, right? It's like, boom, darkness, fury, fire. Like that, that is not, that's not how God is. God's character does not change. God's character does not change. God is consistently described the same as, in the same Old Testament that we're reading this from, he's described as gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. None of those things change in his judgment. In fact, it's his very judgment that proves those things are true. It's his very judgment that proves those things, those things are true. And let me, let me say this, there's no such thing as a loving God who doesn't judge. There's no such thing as a loving God who doesn't judge. And some of you might think, well, that's just absurd. Why can't he just forgive every single time? And, you know, and let me just ask you, would you really want to live in a world where there's no judgment for justice or evil? Would you really want to live in a world where there's no hope of justice for the evil that's committed? Would you really, would you really be okay with a God who simply dismissed all of this evil and senseless acts of violence and horrible things that happened? And injustice, would you really be okay with that? And anyone who says that they are okay, like, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> like, that, that is, it, to live in a world, it's absolutely okay for God to be angry. It, and In fact, it's, it's right. It's what we should want for God to be angry at evil. And as a follower of Jesus and as Christians, it's okay and it's right for us to be angry about the evil in the world. It's okay. Like, turn on the news and you get angry. Because what's happening to God's good world? What are people doing? And if there's no consequence for evil, what kind of God would I serve? 
Tim Keller is a preacher and a pastor I read a lot of, and he said something along these lines. He said, if there is a judgment day, there is no hope. And if there is a ju- if there isn't, or he said, if there isn't a judgment day, there is no hope. And if there is a judgment day, there is no hope. He said, if there isn't a judgment day, there is no hope. And if there is a judgment day, there is no hope. So the idea of judgment, God's justice for sin, has to be a part of the solution for evil. But the problem is, and here's the problem why that quote probably didn't make sense to you. The problem is none of us could stand under that judgment either. None of us could. As much as we want judgment on other people's evil and the evil and brokenness in the world, we could not stand to have that judgment on ourselves. So there's, there's an issue here, and it seems like this, this is an unsolvable problem, right? Well, got a solution Spoiler, has to do with Jesus. We'll get there in a few minutes. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 10 and 11. Y'all doing all right? Yes? Okay. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 10 and 11. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So this is just amazing. It's very interesting because the first 30 chapters of Ezekiel are about God's judgment. And they're like those things, like throwing down corpses and fire and fury and all that stuff we don't, you know, we don't like. But then we get to verse 11 of chapter 33, and God says something just incredible. Through the prophet Ezekiel, he declares that I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But my will, my desire, is that the wicked turn from his way. Wow. So how incredible. Apparently, God feels this great tension in himself. That he does not desire to bring judgment on wicked people, but he also has to bring judgment on wicked people. He desires that people turn. It says, turn, turn. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? There's this other idea people have about God, and it's that he's like sick and twisted and just punishing a bunch of mortals for things they can't help, and we're just, oh, we're so lowly humans, we can't do anything, and God's just a big meanie, you know? So under this idea is this assumption that God is the one responsible for judgment which he kind of is, but he's not the only one responsible for judgment. God is not the only party responsible for his judgment. It's very clear in the Bible that the actions of humans move God to judge. You find me a place in the Bible where there's someone who is being completely obedient and submissive to the will of God and loving God and loving their neighbor as their self, and God chooses to judge them anyway. I, I don't think that exists in the Scripture Look at verse 20 of chapter 3. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just, O house of Israel. And then God's response, I will judge each of you according to his ways. 
according to his own ways. How's God going to judge us? Not according to his preferences, and certainly not according to his desires, but our own ways. He clearly desires that people repent. He doesn't want to bring judgment. He's a God of mercy, but he's equally a God of justice, and he cannot allow evil to be dismissed. And like I said, who would want a God that would simply dismiss all this broken and evil in the world? So I hate to use another parenting illustration because I'm not a parent, and I don't want to be a parent anytime soon. But I don't get any ideas. If, if, you, if, you're, a, if you're a parent, you know that there are times that, that you really do not want to punish your child, at least, at least if you're a good parent and not like some sick, sadistic parent. But that, oh, somebody's laughing. So you really, you don't want to punish your child just for the sake of punishing them, you know? Um, you really don't want to take away that activity or that thing that they really long for because you're, you're, you're their parent and you love them and you care about them and you desire what's best for them. Whatever it is, you really don't want to. If your child, if your child has done something wrong or been disobedient in some way, if you do not demonstrate the consequences, what you are allowing them to do is continue in a pattern of disobedience, right? You are basically saying that that behavior is okay, so you can continue on. And you will continue to receive what you want, when you want, and there's no consequences. This doesn't mean you aren't patient with them or give them warnings, but like eventually, you know, the hammer has to come down as a parent, right? So this is exactly the situation we're in with God. God, God cannot allow us to walk in continuing disobedience in sin as his people. God could not allow Israel to diminish his glory by living as if he was not their sole sustainer and provider. The most gracious thing God could do for you is give a clear warning of the consequence of sin and then execute his judgment like a good parent, right? And, and there's definitely a problem with all of this, and I haven't, we haven't addressed it yet, and that's that if human history in the Bible tells us anything, it's that like we are so screwed up that even if God gives us judgment or warnings of judgment over and over again, like we can't do anything because we keep messing up. I don't, I don't know about you all, but like that's my life <laughs> every day. <laughs> I'm screwing up consistently, constantly, and I'm not being obedient to God's will. So how can God execute our deserved judgment while also receiving his desire of not having to crush wicked people? Well, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 through 28. Um, this is probably one of the more famous passages in Ezekiel. Um, the, I think the next chapter, yeah, is the Valley of Dry Bones, which is also like the only thing I really knew about Ezekiel before this week. <laughs> and... Uh, this is one of, the most one of Ezekiel's most famous passages where God declares that he will one day restore Israel and Jerusalem. So at this point, the Israelites are in Babylon in exile, but Ezekiel's telling this prophecy that one day God's going to restore them. But he also is, is revealing something else. So judgment, or sorry, God's holiness has been profaned by his own people for generations, yet God with every right to completely judge Israel according to their sin, chooses not to do so. 
Instead, God has a solution that involves not crushing the Israelites, but transforming them. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 20, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The the prophet Ezekiel has a solution to this problem, and it's, it's heart surgery, right? It's heart, it's, God performs the first heart surgery on his people. God, God says that he's not going to crush our hearts because they're sinful, but instead he's going to replace them. He's going to perform heart surgery. And I, he said, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So what Ezekiel seems to recognize in this moment is that there's something super screwed up about the human heart. And it's beyond repair. It's beyond repair. Jeremiah 17.9 is a famous passage that some of you all might know. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're sick. We're sick. It's just plain right there. There's something about humanity that's been screwed up. And what we understand from the rest of the Bible and from just our human experience is that that sickness is sin. And it started in Genesis chapter 3. It's it's human rebellion that leads us to attempt to decide what's right and wrong on our own way. And it's, it's that corruption in our hearts that when we get angry or when we get frustrated, it causes us to speak words that are destructive. It's that tendency that we can all recognize in ourselves. So how, how can this just God allow us to continue in our sin unpunished? Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36 tells us, Ezekiel chapter 33 tells us that God does not desire that we suffer. So what can God do? How can judgment be satisfied and the grace of God be displayed? And it's the cross. It's the cross. It's the wonder and majesty and beauty and sorrow and joy and pain of the cross of Jesus. The cross, the reason the cross is so important is not because it's where Jesus died. The cross is important is because it's the perfect meeting place of God's divine grace and His judgment. The Christian literally clings to the cross because I recognize and we should recognize that without the cross, we stand under judgment that we cannot stand under. For the Christian, the cross is the assurance that evil has been judged. We can, we can be hopeful and, and see that even though things are just so messed up in the world, evil has been judged. For the Christian, the cross is the reminder of our constant need for grace. It's the reminder that apart from it, we, along with every other screwed up human, 
could not stand before a holy and perfect God. And for the Christian, the cross is the work of our Savior, Jesus. And it is the instrument by which Jesus received our judgment, not because He had to, but because He desired that we not have to. And He desired that the glory of God would be exalted above all things. Sorry, my paper's getting all screwed up. (laughs) It's only in the view of the cross that we can recognize the debt of Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel looked forward to a day when God's people would put off the old stone heart and put on a new heart of flesh. Because our heart right now is not, or our heart before Christ is not bent towards loving God and loving our neighbor. It's bent towards loving ourselves. A heart bent towards loving God and loving others and repenting from evil is the gift of Christ. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you all, but I recognize continually that I have a heart of stone. Or I did. And I I continually need God to shape me and mold me into a heart of flesh. God has written his law on our hearts and has provided it through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I want to close by just recognizing that this can be like a very theological conversation. And to some of you, this might have seemed more like a lecture in theology than a sermon or a message. And let me just tell you that I think you're missing the point. This is is greatly important. The understanding of the need for God's judgment and how God approaches sin is just essential. The understanding of these truths changed the way you look at the world, and it changed the way you look at yourself. Without judgment or justice, we have no hope for this world. We have no hope for this world. Every horrible thing that happens is just senseless. If you don't understand the idea that evil has been judged and that one day it will be fully dealt with, then you are going to be hopelessly lost when tragedy or injustice strikes you or someone you're close with. How are you going to deal with waking up every single day and hearing something new, a mass shooting? How are you going to deal with the fact that there are millions of displaced families all over our world right now? How are we going to deal with that? How are we going to deal with the injustice and violence and pain that's experienced all over the world? If there's no judgment, if there's not a greater being who decides what's right and wrong, then we have no way of understanding this. We can't make sense of any of it. And these truths, they teach me something about myself. It teaches me that without Jesus, I'm hopelessly screwed up. And I have no hope left to my own work, left to my own accomplishments, because each of us, for some time or another, have contributed the pain and the hurt and the evil in this world. I've done that. You all have done that. We've all done that. And if I don't recognize that I deserve judgment, then I don't worship Jesus appropriately. Because I don't have a real understanding of what happened at the cross. So it seems to me there are probably two groups of people this morning. Some of you this morning probably really struggle to read passages like this in the Old Testament that include judgment and condemnation of sin, and you just don't see how that can be a God worth loving. Because He's so mean, right? 
It just doesn't fit the idea, the assumption we have in our head that God's like our best friend who's going to just look the other way at all of our flaws and encourage us and turn away from the evil that we do. And I just want to be real honest with you and say that God does not exist. For you this morning, if you're in that group, the challenge is to recognize your bias and to embrace a vision of God that may not be as comfortable for you, but is certainly bigger and certainly more glorious if you have that view of, your God, of God as your buddy who just watches you sin and isn't worried about the sin you commit and isn't hurt by it, then maybe you need to turn and repent and trust in Christ because apart from Him, you stand under judgment. And some of you this morning may really have this idea about God that comes from your past, maybe your family history or broken relationships with your parents or whatever, where you just see God as this vindictive disciplinarian who just is waiting for the moment when you're going to screw up so he can punish you and throw down his fire or fury or whatever. And maybe you just don't understand how if God is judge, how can he forgive me? If God is this, if he judged Israel like that for their idols, what's he going to think about my adultery? What's he going to think about my addiction? What's he going to think about my greed or my anger or whatever? And let me just be real honest with you and say that God does hate that sin. He hates it. He hates it very deeply, but he loves you even more. And he desires even more that you would receive grace and forgiveness. And if you're here this morning and you believe yourself beyond grace, look at the cross. There's no sin, there's no doubt that there's no sin, there's no idol that you've worshipped, there's no brokenness that you have that is beyond the cross. And I've experienced in my life that in the times where I felt like I was farthest from forgiveness, when my sin brought me to recognize that I should have been nailed to the cross, when my sin brought me to that point, that's where God brings His transforming grace. That is the moment that God's grace comes closest. That's when my heart was being shaped into a heart of flesh and God was making me more like His Son. If you're there this morning, then there's grace at the cross for you. I want to close with the reading from Isaiah. Um, I'm going to read it slow. And let this be your call to respond this morning. People come to a teaching like this and they've got opinions or they've got um, questions or difficulties. But just recognize God is good. God is good and He's perfect. And His judgment and injustice is perfect. And His love is beyond anything we can imagine. The Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You um, so much for the truth of the cross this morning. God, I'm just... I'm hopelessly lost without it. We're hopelessly lost without it. God, as we come this morning to sing and respond to what you've done, God, help us to recognize where we stand before you. Help us to recognize our need for grace. Thank you, God, that you're good, you're just God, and that the pain and the suffering and the evil that's present in this world 
has been sentenced. It's been sentenced to judgment, and you're going to carry that out. God, let our hope be in you. Guide us to trust and love you more. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.